Amen. Friends, please be seated. And uh, today in the course of this uh, dissertation, we're going to have two or three psalms that we will read responsively. We'll have one of those in just a moment. I do have a purpose today, and it is to show we've had a bit of a theme running on praise, the importance of praise, and what praise can achieve. Today's practical, just like last week was practical. The place of praise and uh, just what can be achieved in your lives. But today, I especially want to um, help you with that, that great need most people have to pray for lost ones in their own family and how that's connected. And the fact that every one of you, me included, we need a word when we pray. We need not just a prayer, but we need a word. And I have a word for you today. I have a word that if you've got no other word, you can use this word. And it will lift your faith and carry you so much further. So we'll come to that in just a moment. Little story. Uh, many of you will have heard of Bill and Gloria Gaither. Uh, great musicians, great songwriters. Now they have been writing songs and performing music and helping other people perform and lifting up a whole lot of performers all around the world for, I mean, more than 50 years. This goes on a long time. They've written songs that you've been singing all your lives and you didn't even know they'd written it. They virtually single-handedly invented inspirational music, a whole genre of music. Their stuff was so good and so appealing that even Elvis Presley was singing songs they had written even when he sang in nightclubs, such as He Touched Me, and there were others. So the reach is enormous, and they're still doing this. Now, the story comes from the fact that when they're in their 30s, now they're now in their mid-80s. When they're in their 30s, the Gaither trio was the thing, and this was Bill Gaither, who sang bass and played the piano, Gloria, who sang, and Bill Gaither's brother, Denny. And Denny was the most fabulous tenor that you ever could possibly hear. The greatest tenor I've ever heard in my whole life was Denny Gaither. Such silky, beautiful singing. He sings, I weep. Especially when he sings that song, then shall I know as I am known. Oh, so you know that, it gets you. Anyway, this is old stuff, of course. But way back in their 30s, when the Gaither Trio was the thing, they were filling huge auditoriums in America. We're talking tens of thousands of people when nobody else was getting much of a following. It was that big. Anyway, here's the story. They went to this place on the East Coast where they were told the audiences there were a bit cold. But they turned up to do this whole concert, found the audience was anything but cold, even though they were conservative people. Uh, they were so moved by the songs and performance and the audience, you know, just got happier and wilder. And by the end of this concert, they closed the concert, you know, to walk off stage and the audience was just erupting with demands for encore, encore, and you know, the, the, this eruption of happiness was actually all over the music and the performance. And the Gaithers felt quite uncomfortable about that. And of course, encores are being called for, so they come back on stage and Bill Gaither just slipped onto the piano bench and began to play a simple song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And it changed the whole tenor of the place that vast crowd that a minute before had been so uproarious, basically in praise of the group, was now in, in a worship service. Immediately after that concert, they're traveling together because they, they used to travel on a bus. They got the team together and they're uncomfortable with the way that thing had gone. 
and they decided they would restructure their concerts so that didn't happen and they needed a way of doing it and right there they began to write a simple song and the song was let's just praise the Lord praise the Lord let's just lift our hands toward heaven and praise the Lord and then you sang those simple lines again that was the chorus there was a verse or two as well and uh, this transformed their concerts but an astounding thing happened that simple chorus became the anthem of the charismatic movement it was sung by Catholics, by Anglicans, by Baptists. It was sung at music festivals and Jesus festivals. It was sung in churches and conferences and seminars. It was just sung all over the world, virtually as much as any other song, the anthem of, of the charismatic movement. It all came out of their simple desire to make sure that, that the focus of the people was upon the Lord. Simple praise. Anyway, it's an interesting story about the power of praise. It's interesting... By analogy, could I say that when you turn your heart to praise, when you turn your eyes on Jesus but express praise, in the same way it will transform your life, your home, your workplace. And uh, you don't necessarily have to judge it in the results in five minutes, but this is all about the transforming of atmospheres and, uh, and your neighborhood. Look, come with me to Psalm 148. We will read it responsively. So two verses at a time will go up. I'll read one, you read two, I read three, you read four. Uh, I've got a mic, so you'll all have to speak up very loudly so that my mic hears your voice over the internet, otherwise I'll have to help you out. But um, the, the thing about this psalm, the last five psalms in, in that set of 150 are all similar like this, focused on praise. But this particular one has a peculiarity. And it is that the first half of the psalm, the first six verses of the 14, are calling for everything in heaven to praise the Lord. And then the second part, it's everything in the earth, praise the Lord. But there's something in the psalm ultimately I want to point out to you. So here we go. We're going to read together. You all set? I'll read one. You read two. Praise the Lord. Uh, notice this phrase. I said the first part's about the heavens. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Pause button there. This is the first half. We'll read the other half in a moment. But there's a truth embedded here. Scripture says, Psalm 33, concerning all of creation, well, concerning the heavenly bodies, he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood firm. And I remember once years ago in my second church, and the year was uh, 1978, 79 it might have been, we had a new convert there, and she was a nurse, and, and um, she'd done so well for the first few months. She was there every Sunday, so vibrant, so alive, and so happy to be saved. She, she was a young mum. She had two kids. Uh, uh, another nurse had led her to the Lord. And then all of a sudden, 
uh, she was pregnant and expecting a third child, but she got exposed to German measles and didn't have an, in, any immunity. And suddenly this fear came upon her and the, the light went out of her eyes and she, she stopped coming to church. She lost her faith. You talk about just locked up in darkness again. And I was so burdened for her. I went out one afternoon, I was on a mountain praying about various things, but I got really burdened for this girl, this young lady. And out there was a boulder on the top of this. And I put my Bible on the boulder and I'm, and I'm praying and I'm saying, I'm thinking of that scripture from Psalm 33, which is reflected here in Psalm 148. We just read it. Uh, he commanded and they were created. He gave a decree, it'll not pass away. But I was looking at the Psalm 33 version and I'm thinking, if I can just get the Lord to speak, you know, if I, if I can seek God for this young woman, if, he, if he'll just speak the word, it'll change everything. So I began to pray on that basis and for 20 minutes cried out to the Lord, Lord, if you would just speak a word, a heart would be turned. If you would just, if you just give me a word, it'll shift something. It'll break something. Lord, I need you to speak. And in the end, he did. He gave me this assurance. He said, you visit her tomorrow and she'll, you'll see that she has changed. And I did visit tomorrow. When she opened the door, the light was back in the eyes. And when the baby was born too, no, no sign of any problem. Perfect, perfect child. But this, here was a case in which I needed, a, I needed God to speak. Because if he commands, it's done. Praise God. And, and it's a bit like that story of the Syrophoenician woman. You know, sometimes you're praying and praying and praying, think getting nowhere. Sometimes you've, you've just got to have the right word to speak to the Lord. And I'm going to give you a word today you can speak. You remember the story of the Syrophoenician woman? So she's not Jewish, but Jesus in the district, she comes, seeks him out. She's got a, a daughter that's, that's sick and demon-possessed and, and troubled, and, and she's crying out. He's ignoring her completely. This goes on and on. And, uh, you know, disciples say, Lord, send her away. You know, she's a pest. Now, but, but the Lord knows how to cultivate hunger and to, to bring people to the place where they can have a, have a good argument with the Lord, if you like. In other words, you, you put your case. And uh, in the end, he said to her, look, it's not right. Because he said, I'm, I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which he was. He said, in fact, he said something you'd think was offensive. It's not right to take the children's bread and give it to their dogs. The Jews used to call Gentiles dogs. Now she didn't take offense. Instead, she had a word. <laughs> she said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the table. Ah, for this answer, he says. Yeah, there's two different gospels. One gospel highlights her faith. But one says, for this answer, you may go your way. There are times you have to pray this through, but you need to bring to the Lord a word that makes a difference. I'm going to help you with that today. We're now the other half. Anyway, the other half of this psalm. Ready? Verse 7. I'm first. You're second. It starts off now. This is the earth part. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. Things and 
kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. And in this last verse that you've just read, leave it on, on, <clears throat> on the screen for a minute, the two things I want to point out quickly. First of all, he says he's raised up a horn for his people. Now, horn means strength, and it can... In this context, it would have been, you know, David, king of Israel or something like that. Ultimately, in your context and mine, the gospel context, this is Christ. Christ is the horn that's been raised up for his people. But by extension, what it means is through the gospel, through the word of God, every one of you is given strength. Remember, wherever you come across this idea of, of, of God's raised a horn for his people, he's, he's established the means to make you strong and to give you the victory meant to be overcomers. And it gives us a, a four here. If you come down to the, th the next line, uh, we read the whole thing. For he's, he's raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. This word near, or the idea that some people are near and some people are far, actually comes up in the scriptures more often than you might think. But it turns out, you are near. At the time this was written, it was the Israel that was near. That is, natural Israel, old covenant Israel. Um, it, they were considered near and the Gentiles were considered far. And that language is picked up in the New Testament and along with some good news. So it was the people of Israel who were near to him and could supposedly draw near and speak with him. However, this astounding status of being close to him, being near and dear to the Lord, has been given to you, and we'll see why directly. Uh, for example, Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, and this is the difference, remember Christ Jesus is the horn of our salvation, but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of of Christ. Your status was changed. And a couple of verses later, Ephesians 2.17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, this is Jew and Gentile, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I, for me, this verse 18 is the most astounding word. Um, <clears throat> Perhaps this is not my favorite translation, rather the one that says, through Christ we have access to the Father by one spirit. That phrase, access to the Father, that's astounding to me. I remind myself of that all the time. When I need to pray, that's the most beautiful thing, access to the Father. We, we, we step, immediately we begin to pray. We're in the heavenly places, before the throne of grace. I praise God for that. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, no, no longer foreigners. It's no longer Israel being near and all the foreigners being far. You're no longer foreigners. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. You're in Christ. That's, that's an astounding status. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God. You have been brought near. Don't forget it. Now, <clears throat> here is the word that I think 
when you come to the Lord, if you have no other word to go on. Now, there have been times in my life when I've sought the Lord, been given a promise, so I've actually got a word to take to the Lord and say, Lord, you said. There have been plenty of those occasions, and the Lord responds to that. But what if there's something you're praying about, and suppose it's someone in your family that's lost. You're concerned about a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or your mother. And you, you're burdened, and, and, and you should be, you should, in fact, I think prayer for the, the, the lost state of your immediate relatives has to be right up there with your top priorities. There might be two or three top priorities in prayer, and this should be one of them. But you're going to have to pray this matter through continuously so that your faith rises to another place altogether because in the end a great deal is determined by faith like that Syrophoenician woman and like many others the Lord spoke to he, he often said to people when he healed them your faith has made you whole he must find faith it's faith that pleases God and without faith it's not possible to please God so in this matter of wanting a breakthrough in your family, especially with some, someone you love who's lost, you're going to have to look for your faith to come to another place where you are more believing than you have been. Instead of seeing and feeling that it's hard, I'll keep praying for them, but it's, but it's hard, you know, it feels cold and dark and nothing happening. No, you've got to come to another place where oh, all of a sudden your heart is possessed with hope. You know, I'm getting somewhere. My prayers are making a difference. And what will help you is, is when you not only make it a priority, but when you've got the right word to pray. And if you haven't heard a promise, now I've, I've had occasions when I've had a word from the Lord. I remember one, I remember with, with one of my kids that I was very concerned about when they were teenagers, the, the, the state of their heart and mind. And I poured a lot of prayer in for months, four months, uh, you know, grief-stricken prayers. I'd, I'd sit at home and, and pray these, you know, please, God, prayers, Lord, you know, pleading with the Lord. Four months this went on. In fact, didn't matter what happened. As soon as somebody left, you know, oh, I'm back to the Lord, you know. And one day, I, I, I was visiting um, another church. It was actually in Oakey. And um, this was before Lloyd and Jenny were there. And Sunday morning, and I was the visiting preacher, but the pastor and his wife went over to the church to get the music ready. I'm left alone in the house, and I'm sitting there and thinking, you know, four months of prayer. As soon as they were gone, oh, Lord, you know, four months of prayer. I, I said to myself, maybe I said to the Lord, four months and no word from the Lord. And immediately he said, read, and he gave me a scripture. And I look it up, and it had a string of promises, all of which were very apparently concerning the matter, but one line in the middle was, I will rescue him. That seemed to be the guts of it. That evening, Sunday evening meeting, pastor's wife disappear over to the church to get the music ready. I'm left alone and, and I'm back to, oh God, you know. And I'm, I'm, I'm in doubt, I'm thinking, you know, was that really the Lord this morning? Was it really the Lord this morning that gave me that word? And the moment I'd pondered it and glanced down, the Bible's opened on my lap, my eyes fell immediately on this 
sentence in the Gospel of Luke that said that was the exact moment in which the Lord said, your son will live. Ah, that week I had to go to Sydney for a conference. It was a prophetic conference, but I was a speaker there. Someone else did the opening night. I'm just sitting in the front row and at the end of, after he preached and prayed a prayer, he just asked everyone to sit quietly in the spirit. Well, as soon as that happens, I'm back to pleading, oh God, you know. <laughs> and in this moment, I was interrupted by the Lord. And I've never been so interrupted. I've, been, I've never been so arrested with aggression in which the Lord was not happy. You want to hear what he said? Because I'm praying, oh, oh Lord. He said, I said, I will rescue him. Oh, I, I sat right back like he, you might say he was cheesed off, but that might be too strong a term. He knows how to express his displeasure and yet he loves you all the while. Does, does you good, you know, a good rebuke. And yet, and yet for me, that was the most liberating word because I realized that what he said, he meant. And he, with, with my years of walking with the Lord, I was meant to believe. And it changed everything. And so I, for days I went wandering around that prophetic conference just rejoicing. Lord, you said, oh, thank God. You know, totally different deal. But I get back home, it's Wednesday, back under the, the gloom and doom of circumstances, you know, and I'm sitting in my office and I find myself immediately going to, oh, dear God. And I stop myself. I had to choose. I purposely stopped myself. I said, I cannot pray this way. He's heard my prayer. He's spoken. And I, I chose to discipline myself and just give praise and thanksgiving. Lord, you've heard my prayer and you've spoken. This is what you're doing. Oh, I thank God. And once I started doing that, because I had a word, it was almost no time at all, just a matter of a few weeks, total transformation of that situation. This is how it works. You've got to go to him with a word. Now I'm going to give you a word that you can use. I was in um, a gathering in Victoria of spiritual sons, uh, somewhere in Melbourne, Ross Blamey had arranged a bit of a retreat in a, a hotel and so there were pastors there and their wives, uh, not a huge group. And we had a couple of days to talk and pray. But I was burdened by something and it was that there was something rather nasty that had raised its head and was, looked like being a threat. I mean, a, a, an existential threat of, of sorts to me and uh, the ministry. It was a person who looked like being an existential threat. And I'm a bit burdened about that. And, and I'd mentioned it to these fellows, you know, for their prayers. When we got praying, one of those guys had a word. He said, I think it was Ivan Pyers. And he said, John, I've I got a word for you. The Lord says, you have a covenant with God and God is a covenant keeping God. So I, we chose to rejoice on that point, And guess what? What looked like a threat 
just disappeared like the morning mist. Every one of you here, if you're in Christ, if you've been born again, if you have the Word of God in your heart, if He's put His love in you, like if He's chosen you and accepted you, and you believe that, guess what? You have a covenant with God. Now don't be such a fool, don't be so stupid as to think that you can, make, you can go and make covenant with God. That's not much good. The Word of man isn't much good. It's the Word of God that counts, and it just so happens He's already made a covenant with you. You don't need any other covenant but the one that is made. And that's the word I want to give you today. Way back when Hazel and I were childless, and long before we ever knew we were going to have as many kids as we did end up having, and yet the Lord knew all the while, and we were having trouble getting one, even though we'd been married five years, and Hazel decided she was going to go seek the Lord because it was no good every month being disappointed and growing old and be disappointed if that was what was going to happen. She needed to know early so that she could just accept life as it was, rejoice and get on with serving Christ. And she said, and I'd be happy. But she said, I must know. So she went and sought the Lord. And this was 1976. And she came back after not that long in prayer, half an hour or so, and she said, the Lord's given me a scripture. And here it is. We put it on the screen for you. This is Isaiah 59, 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your off children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forever. I want you to know some things. But the first thing I want you to notice is this. It's the opening phrase. You can forget the and uh, for the exercise. Most translations don't even put an and in. They just start with as. I love this three-word phrase. As for me, says the Lord. As for me. Do you realize how astounding that is? He is making a declaration about his character, his feelings, his opinion, his action, what he sworn to do, what he will never waver from, will never resile from. This is an astounding statement. As for me, says the Lord, this is the way it is. I, th this, is this is so dependable, you don't even need the word covenant that follows. But he gives it. As for me, this is my covenant with them. Now, what covenant is he talking about? We'll come to that in a moment, except to say, this is your covenant as well as mine. If he can say of me, you have a covenant with God, I can say of you, you have a covenant with God. And it's time to bring it up in prayer, especially if you're praying concerning your children, your siblings, you know, your neighbors, your parents. Uh, and so if anyone here is concerned, especially about your kids or one of your kids, here's the thing, you bring this scripture before the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that's upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart from you, shall not depart from your children or your children's children. Look, it's like the Syrophoenician woman. There are things you don't have, but you've got to get them into place. These are the kinds of words to stand on. I'm recommending if you don't have any other word, take up this word covenant and say, Lord, you made a covenant with me. And thank you that in this covenant there are many mercies, there are many blessings. 
and, and you're seeing them. Remind the Lord of all his grace. He, he, will, he will so often do things for you because you cry out like this that he might not be, have done, might not have been able to do except you cried out and opened the way. Think about Moses up on uh, Mount Sinai. God, has made, God made covenant with Israel. Well, this is really interesting stuff, actually. God at Sinai made covenant with Israel, and they broke it, which means the covenant was broken. The Lord was not obliged to maintain that particular covenant, and he didn't. They broke it. And yet God was still a covenant-keeping God and acted all the while as if he had covenant with them. What was that all about when that covenant was broken? And he said it was broken, and he said he annulled it. It's all in the scripture. I'll show you a verse or two in a moment. Ah, there's a secret here. But first of all, let's go back there. Moses on Mount Sinai, and down in the valley, the very people that he'd made covenant with, the opening words of with, I'm the Lord, you'll have no other gods before me, they made a golden calf, they're dancing around it, and they, they, rise, they rose up to play. So this is some kind of orgy going on, like a religious one. You know what the Lord said to Moses? I mean, he got really angry, you know, smoke out of his nostrils kind of angry. This, this is Bible language. And he says to Moses, get out of my way. I'm coming through. I'm going to destroy them but I'll raise a nation from you. What did Moses do? He, he refused to get out of the way. He stood in front of this, you know, runaway locomotive, if you like, and said, no, Lord, be this far from you. What will all the nations think that you only brought them into the desert to destroy them? No, Lord. And it was because of Moses' prayer, the wrath of God has turned aside and he continued to treat them and deal with them all those many generations as if there was a covenant, even though they broke it. The truth is, the covenant he was really keeping was the, the covenant that's called, it's called the everlasting covenant. It's called the covenant of peace. It's the covenant he made with Abraham, and we know it as the new covenant in the blood of Christ. That was the continuity. And, uh, you know, all of this can be shown in Scripture. And that's what Mori read to us this morning, Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming. It's on the screen, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant, a new covenant with the house of... See, that, that, that covenant at Sinai had been made with Israel and Judah. By this time, there were two kingdoms. He said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel but it won't be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I brought them out of Egypt. Not like that covenant. No, this new covenant is the covenant in Christ's blood, which goes right back to what he had to say to Abraham. And, um, and even says here they broke. It would not be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Zechariah 11, and I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. And so it was annulled on that day. Uh, here, go to Isaiah 54.10. This is the everlasting covenant. This is the one you're concerned with because the covenant made with Abraham and the covenant that we have in the blood of Christ is this covenant. 
And this is where he speaks to you. Remember, you need this. You need this for your prayers. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. This is the everlasting covenant, the covenant of peace. And we happen to have that name on the church in any case. It's a very useful name. It's a very powerful name because the Bible says that God is the God of peace. It says that Christ is the Prince of Peace, that the gospel is the gospel of peace and the covenant, the eternal one, is the covenant of peace. So in the end, we haven't got a bad name. We may as well stick with it because there's power and grace in that name. Thank God. Yes, the covenant that he made with Abraham was not a covenant that had in view just his natural offspring, not natural Israel at all. The covenant that he made with Abraham was rather something a bit bigger. Here it is from Genesis 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings will come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. Now, you are this offspring. Please be clear. I'm emphasizing it because I don't want you to miss the point. You are the offspring of Abraham. It's got nothing to do with whether you're Jewish. The New Testament reiterates this over and over that the children of Abraham are not determined by natural descent. They're determined by whether they have the same faith as Abraham, in which case God gives them his spirit, and this applies to Jew and Gentile alike. And this is why once Christ came and died for the sins of the world and rose again, that the gospel was available to Jew and Gentile, but it went to the Jew first. This is why for Jesus was Jewish, the apostles were Jewish, all the early churches were Jewish. The gospel was only preached to Jewish people for the first 10 years. And the idea was, get every last Jew who could possibly be induced to believe into the body of Christ because this was the body of Christ is the true Israel. And that's why everywhere Paul went, even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, everywhere he went, into the synagogue first. Why? Because he said the gospel is the power of God under the salvation for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Because God had all these previous dealings with the Jews. They preached it thoroughly for 40 years up and down the entire length of not only the Roman Empire but into Arabia and everywhere else. There were synagogues all over the world. Bring every last possible believing Jew into the millennial kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord and Christ into the new covenant into the body of Christ, which was now the administration of the grace of God. Previously, Judaism had been the administration of the grace of God. Now the body of Christ was the administration of the grace of God. But it's the same grace, same continuity, spiritual Israel under the old covenant, spiritual Israel under the new. And then into that was brought, the gospel goes out to all the world, all the Gentiles coming into this holy covenant Romans 4, just so you know, this, this, the truth of this, Romans 4, 
That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. In other words, the father of all believing Jews, the father of all believing Gentiles, and then you're not, neither Jew nor Gentile. You're in Christ. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. In other words, Paul here in preaching the gospel takes it straight back to what God said to Abraham in Genesis 17. I made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Praise God. That brings us to Psalm 149. We're going to read it together. There's one more one more point here to be made. Because this is for the effect of your prayers. Dear friends, all right, Psalm 149, we're going to read it and um, together. I'll read one and you read two and so on. You all ready? Loud voices. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. Before you go any further, you make careful note of that verse right there. See what it says? See, you're near. You've been brought near. You have access to the Father. I mean, how good is this? Look at that line. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Thank God you've been so blessed. Now my verse. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Before you read your verse, isn't it strange that our beds would get a mention? Now, the, the weird thing is this. If you, if you uh, do a search about what goes on, or is supposed to go on in our beds, it's amazing how many references there are to what the godly sing and pray on their beds. Ah, so despite all the other prayers I might pray, when I finally lie down of a night, I know it's legitimate prayer, just the same. Stretched out, oh, a little tired, however, you know. It's right here, but, but there's more. I was surprised. There were, there were numbers of these. There's also a reference in there to what the ungodly have to say and think on their beds, and what I realize is... There's a lot comes out of people when they're in the beds that reflects the true state of the heart. So when your heart is truly in him, oh, there'll be stuff going on in your heart and mind. I wake in the middle of the night, I think of the Lord. I wake, I wake at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 4 a.m., time, I, I always think about, well, I get up and pray now. Or, you know, sleep a bit longer, get up and pray. It's, all, it's, 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 it's natural because uh, you've got the Holy Spirit. You know, it's, what, it's central to all of life. Anyway, let them sing for joy in their beds. Uh, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. To execute on them the judgment written. This is the honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Well, now at the end of this psalm, we're getting into something that's rather big. And I'm not even sure we've got time now to deal with it. But we're going to make a note of it. 
Um, verse 6. If you, um, yeah, thanks, Jack. Verse 6. Let the high praises, that doesn't look right to me. Oh, well, that, that's good enough. It's the second part of what's on the screen. Let's pause and think about this for a moment. Let the high praises of God be in their throats. Now, you normally would have read a translation that said in their mouths, but, you know, this version likes to do a more literal translation of what was in the Hebrew. Um, but not perfectly, because the word praises is not actually in the Hebrew. It's not in the text. What the text actually says is let the high things of God be in their throats or let's say mouths, right? make it simple. Let the high things of God, or as the Septuagint put it, the, the Greek translation from the Hebrew, the heights of God, let the heights of God. And this is obviously referring to the perfections of God, the beauties of Christ. In other words, this is genuine praise and worship and adoration, the heights of God. Let that be in their mouths, and it says, the same verse, and a two-edged sword in their hands. Now, the two-edged sword is what? It's the word of God. We, we all know it. And so this is you. This is you. You are the praying saint. You are the one that wants your prayers answered. You don't want to spend a life, but you've lived powerlessly. You want power in prayer. You want to walk in the power of the Spirit every day. You want your prayers answered. You want to be in that place where you've prayed the thing through and you're believing God and you see the answers come. And thankfully, this is what does happen. But if you're going to strengthen your hands, and especially if you're going to strengthen yourself with respect to praying for difficult things that are hard to achieve, such as you might think the salvation of your loved ones, this is where you must go. Let the high, the heights of God be in your mouths. The high praises. High praises is not a bad definition. That's why, it's, that's why it's in the English translation. It's getting at what it was really about. And the two-edged sword in their hands. Now this two-edged sword, let's think about that for a moment and um, then, we, then we quit. There's, there's two edges of this thing. Now, this is a very sharp sword. And uh, that Roman sword, you know, that was a two-edged sword, it was designed for not only cutting, but poking, you know, thrusting. Two-edged sword, very sharp. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is a powerful thing. This is the word of God. But if you want the Word of God to have power in someone else that you're praying for, it better have power in you first. And it's in your prayers more than anywhere you cause that Word to have power. As you're praying over that Word and seeking to believe, it's amazing where faith will rise and what, and what authority and power then comes off your words. So this two-edged sword is going to do its job in you because Paul said, Ephesians 6, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But if we jump to Revelation 1, we get a picture of Jesus. In his right hand, he held seven stars. We, uh, and from his mouth, we don't have time to deal with all the 
all the symbols here. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Where did this sharp two-edged sword come from when John saw Jesus? From his mouth. In other words, the, this, this power of God that can cut and pierce and divide and discern and change things is the things he speaks. It's his words. Those words have got to be in you. You've got to believe them. You've got to speak them. This is the high praises of God in your mouth and the two-edged sword in your hand. Um, There's one more scripture on this. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. What is the white horse symbolic for? Conquering. And particularly national and international conquering. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. We know who that is. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. We know who that is. His eyes are like a flame of fire. We've come across this in the earlier part of Revelation. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns that is. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. We keep seeing Jesus here. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. You see that there? The name by which he is called. In other words, it is now the Word of God. Christ personified here as the Word of God, riding on this white horse to conquer, to conquer nations. This is not describing the second coming. Please be clear, this passage has nothing to do with the second appearing of our Lord Jesus in the future. This has everything to do with the gospel conquering nations. Keep going. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Look, who gets arrayed in white linen? Who is it? We know from scripture it's you and I. This is the saints sanctified by the washing of the word of God and by the work of the Holy Spirit. We are the, the armies of heaven arrayed in white linen. And here it has us riding white horses following him. This is not the second coming. In the second coming, there'll be no white horses. Thank you very much. And you won't be coming from heaven riding upon them. You'll be, you'll be rising from the earth to meet him. This is none other than the emancipation of the gospel following the destruction of Jerusalem, which is recorded here uh, using the Babylon, Babylon idiom. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Here's the crux of it. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Don't think destruction. Think destruction of evil but think of conquering nations for his purpose because it says, and he will rule them. So he's not coming to, the, the word of God isn't going into the world to destroy, it is to rule. No wonder in Revelation chapter five, the saints of God are called priests of, who will serve God night and day and they will reign upon the earth. This is the same picture. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. By the way, that winepress of the fury 
that is covenant fury which was visited upon Israel in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the priesthood was destroyed, the, the sacrifices was destroyed, the whole Levitical economy was destroyed, and it will never ever be rebuilt because it was destroyed by covenant wrath. And that's the, the reference there. Dear friends, I want to conclude on this point. Your prayers and mine, you, you become, become so mature in faith, so mature in the Word of God, so mature with respect to the Word of God flowing through you when you praise and when you pray and when you worship, that the power of Christ flowing through you then transforms the world around you. In fact, for 2,000 years, we have seen the gospel through the church transform the world, and it is not finished. The gospel will continue to transform the world more and more. You will be astounding. It's a bit like that scripture that says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So we're going to close with reading the third reading, Psalm 2, and I just uh, advise you, don't Understand the symbols. Don't see this as a picture of destruction, but rather transformation. Who ultimately rules? What ultimately reigns? To whom does ultimate submission in this world belong and will be given? Read with me Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Yes, amen. And uh, Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Scripture says all nations will serve him. For your part in our prayer meetings, keep believing God for the transformation of the world in which you live, Australia and central Queensland, and Rockhampton in particular, the blessing of the body of Christ. But today what I especially wanted to emphasize was that in your personal prayers for the lost in your family, try, seek to build up your faith by knowing, the, not just knowing the word of God, but feeling you have in your heart a word that when you go to the Lord, you can stand on that word. Say, so, Lord, you're a covenant-keeping God. Uh, the story is told by Charles Finney in his lectures on revival of a woman who was most concerned for her son and daughter. And uh, he counseled her along these lines too. She, she went and sought the Lord, crying out to God for a word. She was so concerned for them. And the Lord gave her a word right out of the prophet Isaiah, the word that said, and your children I will save. And see, that, that's a powerful word to take hold of. 
something you can take to the Lord every day. Lord, you said, this is your word, this is your promise. And what you find is with every, with every petition, your strength grows, your faith grows, building up on all past petitions. It's amazing the breakthroughs that you can get. Uh, don't give up. Not whatever you have breath left in the body, but make sure that your breath is a believing breath. Don't, don't stay at the first stage of prayer, pleading with God. Get to the second stage of prayer where you can say, thank God, you've heard my prayer. This is what you will do. Lord, I believe. So strengthen yourself in the faith and in uh, the covenant that Christ has made with you. Let's bow our heads and I'm going to give you a few moments for reflection that you might bring your heart to the Lord Jesus and, and seek his face and especially why don't you thank him for the covenant that he's made with you in the blood of his son and for all that covenant means to you and will mean for your prayers. Can I have the band um, come join me on the platform and we'll have a few moments as we close in worship and um, I'm going to pray for you and for your homes in just a moment. If there's anybody here with us today who has never, if you've never put your faith in Christ. Christ has died for you, paid the price for your sins, but it requires your surrender, that you put your faith in Jesus as the one who can save you it, and, and the yielding of your heart. Without the yielding of the heart, the, the surrender of yourself to Jesus, there can be no real salvation. If that's you today, this is the moment. As we sit in the presence of God, this is the moment for you to say yes to the Lord Jesus. Choose to seek his face and to walk with him and to let his blessings flow to you. Father, I pray for every, everyone represented here, every home represented, every family. And thank you for ever increasing grace. You said that we would grow from grace to grace and from faith to faith and from glory to glory. And I pray for all of those who are here today and I lift them up to you and ask that by the strength of your own word, your own counsel, you would lift every one of these in the joy of the Lord, in the peace that you give, in the assurance that comes from Christ. I ask you, Lord that today there be a rich assurance in every heart great peace in every marriage, every home, over our children. The favour of the Lord. Prosper your people. Prosper the body of Christ in this city. Watch over your people with all grace. Strengthen the hands and the hearts of every minister of the Word of God in this city. We pray for the building up of the body of Christ, that the church in Rockhampton would be a holy church, 
that the city would become a holy city. Thank you, this is your purpose, and that all of Australia would serve Jesus. I thank you, Lord, the day of awakenings is not over. We can believe God for fresh awakenings because your word says times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. Let grace break over this whole nation. Thank you, Lord, there will be a new day. We put our trust in you for the answering of our prayers. Everyone now, just turn your, the, your heart's prayer to the lost in your own families. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord if you deal with them as he's dealt with you, faithfully, powerfully. Take hold of them. The word of God rise in them. Put your faith in God. I thank you, Lord. And so I thank you, Lord, you hear our prayers. And now I place the peace of the Lord Jesus upon every one of you, upon your hearts, your minds, I release it to you, his peace over your home and your family. The blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be yours now and forevermore. Amen.